This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. On Sundays, I've been going through a series, and it's called The Spiritual Biography of a Nation, and I've gone all the way back to basically around the uh, Columbus uh, season of time, which is going to awaken what's called the Age of Discovery, and I'm currently right at the uh, Pilgrim journey where they're in England trying to get off into the Atlantic in the Mayflower, and that's basically where I'm going to pick up, but I'm I'm episode 13 in this series, which shows you that there's a lot uh, that has transpired in between. And I'm not trying to teach history, ironically. History is a tool that I'm using to explain something. God has done something marvelous in this country, and it is something that is under siege and under attack. And almost if you were to stare at our country right now, you would wonder if we have a godly heritage. There's shades of it, there's nuance of it, and the church has legal right technically in our country to gather and to do things. If you, if you look at the First Amendment, hey, we shouldn't have any issues, right? But we do have issues because an ancient evil that is very familiar with this territory, that once ruled this territory, wants it back. And it is the spirits of lawlessness, fear, and deception. And they're very familiar in this territory, and they are clamoring for a return unto power and control. What's interesting is these powers were originally kicked out and booted out by the power of the gospel. And the movement of a missionary uh, work in this country. There is a lot of martyr's blood that has been spilled in this country, and many of us as Americans don't realize that. That in the age of discovery, there were two movements. One that went south and one that went north. The one that went south was after gold. The one that was going north was after God. Very distinct. You don't hear this oftentimes when our history is repeated you would think that the conquistadors came to North America. No, no, they went south. They went after the Aztec, Inca kingdoms. They wanted gold. They considered the north God-forsaken territory. They didn't want to have anything to do with this. There's no gold here. They were staring at New Mexico and Arizona going, we don't want that. Yuck. And so as a result, the missionaries saw lost souls here. And so you have the Franciscans that came up and started establishing missions in New Mexico, Arizona, and Southern California. You have the Jesuits who came in in what's called New France in up and through the Canadian territories down into Illinois and Michigan and down the Mississippi River. And then you're going to have Great Britain finally make its move. Jamestown was their first, well, Roanoke was their first. We'll, we'll discount that. Uh, Jamestown was their first attempt under the banner of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to this nation. I am not going to give it any plaudits or applause. It was actually a disaster in the making. A whole bunch of gentlemen that came over and none of them wanted to work. And so most of them died. And, or they raided Indian camps and they tried to steal what everyone else was doing. It was a terrible illustration of Christ, right? So I'm not going to try and cover up America's blemishes. We do have them, right? But we also had something amazing that took place. Something is going to be established just north of Jamestown because of a storm that is going to keep the pilgrims from making their way down to join the the Virginia Charter 
and they're going to be established at Plymouth. And something is going to alter the course of our nation that is going to take place there. Even before these pilgrims get off that boat, they're going to establish a form of government which is still in existence today in America, which is going to set this nation apart from all other nations even before it, and is going to create the greatest factory for sending forth missionaries this world has ever seen. Something amazing is taking place in this country in the past. And no one really wants to tell you about that anymore. And we want to erase it. We want to eradicate a history. A history, by the way, which is full of a whole bunch of bad people too. There's, I, we could take any nation and we could find pictures of light in it and we could see pictures of darkness in it. And yet that's part of the redemptive story. You look at the lineage of Christ and you're going to see a whole bunch of bad guys. It's weird. You see a whole bunch of bad guys in his lineage. Isn't that a weird thought? You're going to see a whole bunch of bad things in it. If we just brought it out, you're like, whoa, what's that doing in there? And he's okay with that because he's a redemptive God. He knows that the enemy is going to make his move, but he has the final say, and he is going to trump everything the enemy does. Everything the enemy means for evil, he's going to convert. And this is the type of God we serve, right? This is who he is. And so there is something that he is going to do to preserve this nation, and he is going to build for himself a platform to share the gospel with the nations. It's profound. And yet that platform is under siege to the point that even the church that has enjoyed that platform, we even don't oftentimes know what our heritage is. And we're believing all those that are knocking over statues and spray painting them right now. It's like, well, maybe they have a point. Well, I'm not saying that there aren't bad people that have lived on this land and that have done very bad things. Uh, and yet, there's also some amazing pictures of godliness that have lived here and that have worked and labored here to establish something so that we could enjoy a liberty so that we could be trained in godliness so that we could go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now here's one thing that is very, very significant for us to know. As Americans, our job is not to worship America, to revere the Constitution in such a way where we treat it as if it's the Bible. These things are subservient. They are, if they fade away, our calling doesn't fade. You know that if we were thrown into prison, our calling doesn't fade? Do you know that if we had our bank accounts frozen, our calling doesn't fade? Do you know that if this building was on lockdown and we were you know, prohibited from entering in and having a, a, a service here, that we would still be the church? That wouldn't change us at all. The church is not defined by a building or a bank account. It is not defined by the fact that we have a First Amendment right to it. It is defined by God. God is the one that has given us are right. He's the one that has determined the church of Jesus Christ essential business. We take our cues from God Almighty. I am needing my clicker, which is right down here. Uh, <clears throat> so as we go into this, I mean, those of you that are here for the one week, I think this is like your only uh, Sunday sermon while you're here. So you'll get, what, part 13. You just sort of show up and you get part 13. However, I, I think this will still be a standalone and you won't feel like, wow, I, I really, really missed the first 12, even though it's always a good idea to go back and get the first 12. Come on, guys. I don't think it's essential. Now, it's funny, in the, the weeks, typically I'm going through a series on World War II. You guys show up into town for the one week and you're going to get a whole bunch of different people other than me for Daily Thunder. So I'm not going to be doing a Daily Thunder this week, which is terrible. I mean, it's hard for me, too, not to do the, the World War II series that we're in. If you guys have heard that, that is, like, so exciting. It is so amazing. We're on episode 64, I think, is my next episode. Could you imagine 64 episodes in, in something? But I'm still, I haven't even gotten to D-Day yet, but I'm close. I'm closing in on D-Day. Uh, so... 
this message right here is called Readied for the Crisis. I'm going to be addressing one very specific event in history, and most of us don't even know it happened. And it's, we haven't even gotten the pilgrims to the, the new world yet. In this story, we're actually going to be halfway across the Atlantic, and something is going to happen, and it's a crisis. And the reason I'm calling it Readied for the Crisis is because there's a preparatory work in us as the saints of God, which is very, very significant. If we will allow God to train us, we will be ready. It's sort of like he gives the virgins a lamp, and he's inferring something. That lamp needs oil in it. And if we will do what we're supposed to do, we will be ready when the bridegroom comes. However, if we get the lamp, but we are not allowing the Spirit of God to also prepare us to do what we're supposed to do with that lamp, when the bridegroom comes, we are not ready. We're not readied for the crisis. There are going to be situations throughout history. I, I, I just happen to enjoy war history, not because I want to fight in a war at all. I'm just extremely fascinated because it's a parallel with how the Christian life works. I am in a battle. And actually, when I've studied war, it helps, helps me understand so many dynamics of what I have faced in standing for Jesus Christ and for his gospel in this generation. But in that process of war, you're going to see a preparation for war. And if soldiers are trained well, if they are prepped for that engagement, it does not mean that it isn't difficult. It does not mean it takes away all the challenge of it. It just means they are fit to win, just like a test. If, if any of you have ever been tested, I'm guessing most of us in here have gone through a test at some level. But if you are given a test and you are not studied up for it, it's miserable. It's a form of torment, right? Because you're like, I, I don't know. I should have studied. And the whole while you're doing the test, like, oh, I should have studied better. Miserable, okay? No one really wants to be there. And some of us have been there and we're like, oh yeah, I agree with you, Eric. Amen. That is terrible. Have you ever had a dream? Uh, if you've ever went through public school, then you, you really know the testing system uh, well. But uh, after you graduate from high school, you still will go back to high school in your dreams, okay? Sometimes that's in your underwear. Sometimes that's uh, forgetting your locker combination. If you guys remember lockers, you know, I still, it's like, is it twice right and then once left? And what? oh no, I can't remember. So I'll be in a dream and I'll be like stuck outside my locker in my underwear. It's like, oh, I need to get, oh, it's terrible. Okay, so those are horrible dreams, right? And uh, But one of the other dreams you can have of going back into high school is having a test and, not, and forgetting that you had a test. And of course, it's your dream, right? So you're thinking, how did I not prepare for this test? And I'm like sitting down at the test and they're handing it out and I'm like, I, I didn't prepare for this. Oh, it's terrible. Well, let's switch that around, okay? You're fully dressed, you know your locker combination and you're prepared for the test. Being prepared for the test, actually you get a little swagger and you're like, bring it, bring it, I'm ready. It's, it's totally different. When you are ready for a test, you do not fear or dread the test. You actually want the test. You want to prove it. Have you, have you ever had it where you have flashcards and you know the flashcards really well, so you give them to one of your brothers or sisters or your parents, like, come on, ask me the flashcards. You actually want to show them. I don't know who you're showing off to, like them. Uh, you're like, yeah, see, I know them all, right? It like, feels really good when you know that. That's exactly the way it is for Christianity. When you are ready, you do not fear the crisis, you do not fear the test, you do not fear the trial, you actually relish it. I know, was I describing any of us in here? Which of us in here actually relishes a test? Well, that's not normal, that's, that's weird, right? No, that's Christian. There is something about a test, if you study it in scripture, that actually is going to build you stronger. That's what it says. A test, a trial, 
is not something you're supposed to fear. It's something you're supposed to delight in. You're supposed to rejoice when you face trials of various kinds. Rejoice. Why, why would I do that? Because that very trial is a tool, is an, a piece of exercise equipment to make you stronger. So you're like, thank you, Lord. Oh, I get to get stronger through this. It's a different way of thinking. But if we start to think in accordance with God, we do not fear the crisis. We thrive in the crisis. One of the mental pictures that has most stood out to me as far as the orientation that I have towards crisis is 9-11. If you guys remember 9-11, was that 2001 when uh, the two towers in, in New York City uh, are hit uh, with a uh, terrorist attack and then suddenly they, they begin to crumble and I mean, people are just going berserk uh, in downtown New York, and they're running. I don't know if you guys remember seeing those, those news scenes where all these people are screaming and yelling and running. You got dust in the background, and they're trying to get away from this crisis. That's the way most of us handle crisis, just like that. But there's another group in that exact same situation that is handling that crisis completely different. The police, the fire department, the rescue workers of any kind, you know what they're doing, what they were trained for? To actually run in. They're running straight towards the same thing everyone else is running away from. So what I want you to catch is the distinction between the world's response to crisis and ours as the church of Jesus Christ. However, to be readied for crisis, we need to be able to handle our trials. We need to absorb our trials the way God is asking us to. Eric, if you want to be prepared for the middle of the Atlantic when this disaster happens on the Mayflower, you need to be trained long before that with my small training trials. All my different things I'm wanting to bring to you, I'm wanting to prepare you for that day. If you allow God to prepare you and you greet your trials with joy, with thanksgiving, then you are built for greater trials to the point where you smile at them and go, oh, this is going to be good. I, I just can't wait to see how God's going to handle this because he will handle it. And how do you know that he will handle it? Because he handled these smaller ones all the way leading up. Remember David, when he gets to Goliath, he's like, uh, <clears throat> lion, bear, Goliath, <clears throat> what's the difference? It's just a little bigger. Right? There's no difference. That's the same thing for you. You are graduating unto bigger challenges, but you know that the same God that handled the bear is the same God who handled the lion. And so you have graduated up to the point where your faith is ready to greet this crisis with a smile. So I'm going to sort of go back and forth throughout this message between Abraham, Moses, and the pilgrims. <laughs> sort of a funny mixture, isn't it? Mixing the pilgrims in with Abraham and Moses. But, you know, they really are a pretty extraordinary illustration of something. So Abraham, we have the three days to Moriah. We're having a readying. Okay, now Abraham was readied long before these three days, but this is an acute season of readying. And many of us will go into a three-day period, which is... Not the crisis itself. The crisis for Abraham is going to come at the end of those three days. On his journey up to Moriah with his son carrying the wood on his back. Okay, he's, this is already a crisis, but there's a greater crisis when he raises a knife above his head. That's a, that's a fatherly crisis at a whole other level, guys. I, I mean, being a father, I cannot even compute that challenge. Okay, that's a crisis that Abraham is being readied for. Then we have Moses, the three days to the Red Sea. Okay, that's actually the distance between the deliverance, the Passover meal, and then 
heading out to the Red Sea. There's a preparation that is taking place. Now, he's been prepared for years, 40 years in the backside of the, the wilderness as a shepherd. Yeah. Uh, his encounter with God at the burning bush. Yeah. Ten plagues. Yeah, he has seen God's faithfulness. Now he has an acute test of three days. He has an entire nation following him. And he has no idea how to pull this off other than to trust his God. And, you know, word on the street is the Egyptians uh, have sort of awakened from their uh, slumber and they are getting their military uh, strength together and coming against them. Word on the street is there's a Red Sea up ahead and mountains that are closing us in. <laughs> we have no way out. Okay, this is an acute crisis. And you're going to see that this man was prepared for it. He was readied for the crisis. Most of us would fall to pieces in these situations. You're going to see men in these stories that are going to handle it very different than we handle it. And so the pilgrims, the three weeks to departure. So I'm just using this word three. Uh, because Whether or not it was exactly three weeks, it sort of fits my, the way I'm saying everything right now. So we're going to make it three weeks. It's close to three weeks, okay? But three weeks is a nice round number that gets my three theme going. So the pilgrims are going to have three weeks of departure. So if you go back to episode 12 in this series, which is last Sunday, I'm going to go through and walk through that three weeks. And it's what is going to prepare them, ironically, for the middle of the Atlantic. There is something that is going to happen. Last week's message was really hard. <laughs> what the pilgrims are going to go through to actually just leave is so extreme because they've already been... They've already gone through extreme difficulty to even get them to the point where they think we need to leave. Now to leave becomes an acute crisis. So Peter Marshall, the historian, says there was another reason for God's narrowing the company down to one ship. Now I'm going to go into this just briefly because this is what I went through last week. But they have two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower. Okay, and they're still packed in. And then the Speedwell in these various journeys, three days out and then... There's a leak. They have to come back. Three days. Okay, that's six days round trip, and they got nowhere, right? And then they fix the leak. They caulk it all back up, and then they go back out three days. Leak. <laughs> they have to come back. That's, that is like 12 days right there of just going back and forth and getting nothing. The second time, they have extreme seasickness. So these guys, now they've gotten nowhere. They're extremely sick, and after trying to find the leak in the speedwell, they can't. So they end up saying it's not seaworthy, which means everyone has to pack into the Mayflower. Okay, this is not a good start to this journey. So Peter Marshall is referencing that. There was another reason for God's narrowing the company down to one ship, to make it indeed a company. It had taken years of baptism of fire to temper the spiritual core of the pilgrims into hardened steel, but now there were only a few weeks available in which to temper these strangers and anneal them to the pilgrims' core. For unless they were so bonded, they would soon fly apart under the pressures that awaited them on the other side of the ocean. Much could be done, but it would require tremendous heat and pressure. Well, I don't know how many of you want to sign up and be a pilgrim after reading that paragraph. This is Christianity, though. If I could summarize, like, that could be written about the Ellerslie staff over the first 10 years. Wouldn't you guys say that that would be accurate? It, it, there was another reason why God's narrowing of the Ellerslie staff down to uh, some serious difficulties, uh, to indeed make it a company. We are very bonded together as a team. It is very hard to break us apart. 
We are very loyal to one another, and we have a deep, deep love for one another. Well, how did that happen? Well, we've sort of gone through Vietnam together. <laughs> Bullets flying overhead, and we're like we're down in this uh, trench with each other. And you know, it bonds you after a while. You know, you've gone through something together. That's the same thing that's going on here. These guys are going to be firmed up together. So the layers of readying for the pilgrims, this is just their story. I don't know what your story is going to be. I, I could tell you my story, but that would take time. We don't have time for that today. So I'll go through the pilgrim story. The persecution. You see, they are separatists. There were two different groups. The Church of England, uh, which is Anglican in its leading, uh, was a state-led uh, church system in England at the time. And James I has come to the throne and James I is sort of pliable, and the bishops at the time were very anti the Puritan movement and the Separatist movement. The Puritans wanted to change the Church of England from within, and the Separatists believed the Church of England was so far gone that they were going to separate from it. And so that's the pilgrims are going to be Separatists. Both of these groups are going to ultimately be kicked out. There's an edict of 1618. By the way, date-wise, the pilgrims are going to come to Plymouth in 1620. So 1618, the Edict uh, of 1618 is what it's called, uh, is going to boot out the Puritans and the Separatists. They're not even welcome in England anymore. They're out. Okay, so we have the persecution of these people. They're going to go through extreme persecution. Then ultimately get the boot. And many of them are going to end up in Holland, Leiden, Holland, which is why in history they're oftentimes called the Leidenites too. And uh, in Holland, Holland will welcome them but Holland will not give them any of the jobs that actually make good money. So even though these are educated men and women, they have to work menial labor and to make enough to even survive, they're working both husband and wife and kids 15 hours a day. This is a form of torture. As the years are passing, they can hardly function as a community because they're constantly working. They're, even it says of the, the pilgrims, they were aging quickly. <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you work 15 hours a day with no break. They have, like, how are we supposed to survive like this? And all the kids were actually starting to look at the other kids in Holland and go, I'd rather be like them. They have normal lives. They don't have to work all day long. Uh, Mom and dad, I, I'm more attracted here. So many of them were joining the military. And so to even preserve the heritage of what they represented for Christ, they're like, we need to get out of here. So then they have a decision. They decide to go, right? But the decision, and I say it here, to go north, this is going to be an exhausting decision too. This is part of their preparation because they have two key locations that they could go. One is to South America, Guyana, which is warm. It's like tropical. And fruit like falls off the tree and even sort of finds its way into your mouth and it you know, chews itself. I mean, it's like you, there's no work needed. It's just like you're fed just because you're there. And there's gold everywhere, supposedly, according to legend. And the, then they have another option, that's to join the Virginia Charter and to come to Jamestown, which by the way, up to that point, 50% of everyone that arrived in the first year would die. Who in the right mind would ever go north? They're going to pray about it and they feel that they are supposed to go north. Could you imagine this decision-making process and imagine you know, some of the flack that they were getting from some of the other people in the group. It's like, you've got to be kidding. The cost to join this venture, which one-third of them are going to actually sign up for it and say, okay, we'll go ahead and prepare a settlement for all of you guys to come over, 
it's going to cost them so dearly. Remember, these guys are living hand to mouth, but each one of them needs to pay, I think, the equivalent of like $1,000 would have been the amount, which doesn't translate well to us, right? Because it's like, well, that's not that much. When you have no excess, this is like scrimping, hunger, extreme things to make this happen. So these guys are gonna sacrifice greatly to make this happen, and then they have to say goodbye. Say goodbye to everything that, that is familiar with them. Family and friends, this is a very close community. They're gonna say goodbye, and they're going to be heading out on a journey where likely 50% or more of them are gonna die in the first year, statistically. <laughs> I mean, that, that is quite the, uh, the thing to head off into. So now they're ready to go. They have the two boats, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, and they're gonna go through the three weeks. This is going to be a proving ground. This is what my message was on last week. I called it making the second cut. The first cut is, yes, I'm willing to go. Very few of us actually uh, understand even how difficult it is to make it through the first cut. To be one that's like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to go where Jesus wants me to go. It's the second cut that I want us to be preparing for. Because there's going to be another cut here, and there's going to be a good percentage of the pilgrims that after these three weeks are actually going to say, I'm not going on this trip. And that's what's going to happen next. Thomas Weston, who was the one that was financing this adventure, he's sort of a scoundrel. Uh, he is going to pull uh, a stunt on them right as they're getting ready to leave. They've already said goodbye. They're already packed away, and they're ready to, to, to ship out. He says, oh, by the way. Uh, and he says, I want you indentured for 14 years instead of seven. If you want this last remaining money to make this happen. And so they decline. They're like, no, we're not going to fall for that. We're not going to be indentured for 14 years. So now they're in a tough time. They have to come up with a serious amount of money to cover it. So they're going to sell all of their butter, which I know sounds funny, but they had a surplus. Their entire surplus for the trip was, I guess, butter, as strange as that sounds. And so they sold all their butter to make the trip go. Now they have zero surplus for the trip. They're going to go three days out. And remember, they're going to have the leak in the speedwell, and then they're going to have to come back. Then they're going to get it fixed and go three days out and get seasick and have to come back. This is a form of mental torment. <laughs> if any of you have gone through seasons like this where it's just like, God, I haven't gotten anywhere. And all I've done, and what do they do in this whole time? They're eating their food. All of their food for survival over there, which is so difficult. Already it's a 50% death rate, right? When they go over and the only way to make it is you have to have a certain amount of food and you want to get there earlier in the fall than they're going to get there. Everything is creating the delay. Everything is bad right now. And so uh, now they're going to find out the news that they just lost the Speedwell and it's not seaworthy. And now, uh, who really wants to go on this trip? You're going to have a good portion of the, the pilgrims that are like, I'm not going. Obviously, God's not in this. And so this group that is going to remain is a pretty special group. Let's just put it that way. These guys are pretty hardy, right? They're being prepared for, for testing and trial. But this group is going to change the course of history. This group the one that is willing to press forward through trials. This group also doesn't complain. That's one of the interesting things about uh, pilgrims is they rejoice in suffering and they have a placid calm. They're sort of, most people would call them sort of boring people because they're not really emotional. They just take everything in stride. You can't really ruffle them. They're like, no, we will not pay you, Thomas Weston. That's unfair and unjust. You know, they're nice about it too. It's like, come on, guys, punch him in the nose. Do something. No, they're just nice guys, right? Which is why Thomas Weston thought he could play him. He knows they're nice guys. He knows they're gullible. He knows they're innocent. So he's going to try and play them. He'll get them indentured for 14 years. And so instead, they sell their butter, right? These guys are quite amazing characters. But even among the amazing characters, a whole bunch of them are not going to go on the trip. They're like, I can't handle this. And the reason is the impossible math. 
If you have any mathematical mind to you, you already know that 50% are likely going to die when you get over there, because that's hard enough, right? But they have food for this, and it's like they're, they're thinking it through. They have their, their surplus of butter, right, which just got sold, uh-oh. Then they're eating into their rations. They're eating into every month. Now they have only a few weeks after they get there, and they will be out of food. And now they're pushed into the fall, and the harvest season may already be passed. In other words, you, you sort of think about these things, you're like, this isn't good. And so you have some of the mathematicians in the group that are like, this is impossible. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the Christian life. You see, what God has asked us to do is not what is conceivable, not which is, I mean, Jesus says to the, his disciples, feed them. Well, how many are out there? Well, there's 5,000 men. That's not including women and children. Feed them? How in the world am I supposed to feed them? And he doesn't say, here's how you feed them. He just says, feed them. And so then they go out, they found what? A few loaves and fishes? So you do the math on that, guys. In the kingdom of heaven, the math doesn't work. God is greater than our human math. Our job is to trust. When God is preparing us for this life, he will put us in mathematically impossible situations to prove that he is greater than the natural realm. But none of us really want to step into those situations. Do we really want to live the Christian life or do we want to esteem it from a distance? Many of us want to esteem the Mayflower journey from a distance. We really don't want to join the Mayflower. Let's just be honest. We're really glad that's back in 1620 and it's not in 2020. Huh. Well, this is the 400-year anniversary. That's interesting. I didn't even think about that. Yay! 400. Let's celebrate. I don't know why I haven't thought about that this whole time. That's intriguing to me. I like numbers and dates. So I'm a mathematician that's doing all the math on this all the time. A few loaves and fishes isn't going to feed this. And yet I have seen God in his math. He's really good, guys. So Abraham, the crisis on the mountain. This is a crisis. He is going to, to obey God. He is reasoning through this. He has seen God prove faithful. He knows his God is trustworthy. He is going to raise his knife. Now, he's reasoning through this, and I'm going to show you his reasoning because in Hebrews, in the New Testament, we're actually going to get an idea of what was going through his mind because many of us really struggle with the story of Abraham and Isaac. It's like, that's a really weird one. God, why would you ask him to do that? So do you trust that God has seen this moment ahead of time and supplied for it? Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding, that means Abraham is concluding something. That God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So in other words, Abraham is reasoning through this. My God is faithful, he's true, he will keep his word. He has promised that the seed of Isaac, he is going to fulfill all his promises, which means somehow this guy has to survive. So if I'm supposed to kill him, I guess God's gonna raise him back to life. Do you know that up to this point, not one person had ever been raised to life from the dead? So you have, you have, a, you have a faith that is pretty stout here. You have a guy who believes his God and is willing to obey even though it is about as crazy of a plan as I've ever heard. And he is going to receive him back from the dead. That's why it says it. In a figurative sense, he does. He is going to receive Isaac back from the dead because he had to, in his own mind, go through the process. He had to agree with God and say, okay, God, I'm ready to do this. And he's going to receive him back. 
Moses and the crisis at the sea's edge. Do you trust that God has seen this moment ahead of time and supplied for it? Now, it's interesting because I'm, ask, I'm asking that question. Do you believe that God has supplied for this moment? Now, in the Abraham moment, he raises his, uh, his knife. Has God supplied for this moment? He needs a sacrifice. He has. Has God supplied for this moment? Moses is at the Red Sea. Now, you may be in a crisis moment of your own. You may be up to the Red Sea in your own life. The question is, do you trust God right now? Do you believe that he has supplied for this moment? So I'm going to give you a different take on the Red Sea than maybe you're used to. Uh, Flavius Josephus is a historian that lived as a contemporary of Jesus, okay? Which is an interesting thought that there's a contemporary historian that wrote and even writes about Jesus and of his resurrection. It's fascinating, just in a historical sense. But he also writes the histories of, it's called the Antiquities of the Jews. Extremely interesting to read because it's the verbal tradition of these great stories that we see in Scripture. And so it's not Scripture, but it's a fascinating perspective on it. So that's what I want to read just to give you some new flavoring to uh, this Red Sea experience. Now when the Egyptians had overtaken the Hebrews, they prepared to fight them. And by their multitude, they drove them into a narrow place for the number that pursued after them was 600 chariots with 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 footmen all armed. The reason that's important is to recognize the Jews, the Israelites in this case, had no weapons. So they have no weapons and they have their women and children and their, you know, their goats. You know, well, what, do you, what do you do? How, how do you defend yourself? And you're backed up against, it's in a narrow place it says, you're backed up against the sea. On both sides you have a mountain and then on the other side you have the strongest military unit in the world coming against you. <laughs> this is not a good situation. I think this would be termed a crisis. I think it's fair to assess it that way. They also seized on the passages by which they imagined the Hebrews might fly, shutting them up between inaccessible precipices and the sea. The Hebrews, if they should have thought of fighting, had no weapons. They expected a universal destruction unless they delivered themselves up to the Egyptians. So they laid the blame on Moses and forgot all the signs that had been wrought by God for the recovery of their freedom, and this so far that their incredulity prompted them to throw stones at the prophet while he encouraged them and promised them deliverance. So Moses is encouraging them. He's promising, God will deliver us. And yet there, you know, saying we have to turn ourselves over to the Egyptians. Look what you did to us. Now they're going to make it even harder for us when we go back into slavery. They obviously haven't caught the fact that God is in control. But Moses is the key man in this situation. He knows his God. He has been prepared and readied for crisis. So for you and I, I don't want you to study the Israelites and figure out how you should respond. I want you to study Moses in this situation and watch how he responds. I want you to study Abraham, Moses. I want you to look at the pilgrims here. I want you to see something, a pattern for how you can be ready for the most difficult of circumstances. But Moses, though the multitude looked fiercely at him, did not, however, give over the care of them, but despised all dangers. Isn't that a great line? He despised all dangers. It's like, yeah, dangers. <laughs> Is that how you treat your dangers? Like, yeah, dangers. I despise you. He holds dangers in contempt out of his trust in God. And said, it is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. 
It would be crazy, it would be lunacy to despair in God right now. Has he not led us here? Is it not God who brought us to this place? So Moses is going to go on, according to Josephus, and say, God possesses this spot. This is his territory. He knew we would be here right now. He knew there would be mountains on both sides. He knew there would be a sea right there, and he knew that they would be raised up to come against us. Any questions? If God knows all that, and he has told us that he has taken us out of Egypt to bring us into the land of promise, you reason through that with me. Why would God fail us now? And of course the Israelites are like, because there's a Red Sea there, there's mountains there, and they're the strongest military force. They can only see the natural. They're looking at the math. What are you looking at? Do you trust God? Are you prepared for the crisis? You see, if you have a lion and a bear before you get to Goliath, you can reason. You can stair-step up in your faith. If you have skipped the lion and cowered before it, if you, had, if you have cowered before the bear, then you get to Goliath. I don't blame you for cowering because that's one big dude. However, if you allow God to prep you, you are prepared for the crisis. So the pilgrims... Uh-oh, the crisis of the broken mast. Now, I don't, some of you may have heard this story, but this is profound. They're in the middle of the Atlantic. In fact, they've just passed the halfway point in the Atlantic. And something so disastrous is going to happen. So disastrous that it's almost incomprehensible of what you would even start, what would go through your mind if you found out that it had happened. Yesterday, I was driving into the banquet and a rock hit my windshield. Not a disaster, but it, you know, it cracked my windshield. And I don't know how you handle a cracked windshield, but I sort of grumbled to myself, and then I, I had to awaken to the fact that, praise God, praise God, thank you for that cracked windshield. You know, we have our moments. So I, I, I even paused. It's like, how would I handle this? If we're just past the middle of the, you know, the Atlantic journey, we're crossing over into the impossible math territory in the later fall, which we didn't want to be arriving in, and it's not just a, a rock that dings the windshield. It's the mast snaps. Oh, okay, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good, guys. We are a vessel in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and that's how we move is by catching the wind, right? I mean, what? no, 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 not the mast. So the crisis of the broken mast, 102 pilgrims, 102 pilgrims huddled in the lantern-lit darkness. This is Peter Marshall, by the way, for those that are getting this podcast-wise. 102 pilgrims huddled in the lantern-lit darkness of the low-ceilinged tween decks. No hatches open because of continuous storms. All non-essential personnel required to stay below decks. The constant crying of small children. No chance to cook any meals. It added up to seven weeks of ill-lighted, rolling, pitching, stinking misery. So uh, how are you guys doing? Now, we have... Survived the persecution. We've, decided, we've survived the boot out of uh, England, our homeland. We were kicked out of our homeland, guys. We've survived working 15 hours a day for, 15 hour days for multiple years. We have scrimped and saved up and paid to get on this ship. We have said goodbye to everything we know and love. We have gone, uh, oh, we've sold off our surplus of butter. We've gone three days out, three days back, three days out, three days back. Now we're seasick. Now we just found out the speedwell is not seaworthy. And now we packed 102 of us into one boat with all of our belongings 
And the whole journey across, seven weeks, is storm. Oh, my. Okay, that's where we're at right now. I don't know how you're doing. Are you rejoicing? Are you, I'm hoping you are because the Bible clearly commands you to be rejoicing right now. Oh, wait a minute. I, I had one. That kind, it's the kind that, so let me read this. It added up to seven weeks of ill-lighted, rolling, pitching, stinking misery. The kind that brings up sins that had laid buried for years. <laughs> yep, yep. Anger, self-pity, bitterness, vindictiveness, jealousy, despair. All these surface sins had to be faced, confessed, and given up to the Lord for his cleansing. No matter how ill they felt or how grim the daily situation, they continued to seek God together, praying through despair and into peace and thanksgiving. This is quite the group, okay? Most of us, when we think of the pilgrims, we sort of summarize this by getting them across the ocean and then we, you know, we have the Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, we don't really understand what this group went through to establish a foothold in this country for the purposes of Jesus Christ. I mean, it is extraordinary. Our government, our lifestyle, our system of American government is going to flow out of basically James I kicking the Puritans and the pilgrims out of England. <laughs> We're going to get that as a benefit here. And it is going to establish something in this country that is going to set a tenor and a pace, both governmentally and lifestyle and culturally, which will actually create a factory for missionary preparation. The most frightening episode of the voyage occurred not long after the Mayflower passed the halfway mark. Uh-oh. In a particularly violent storm, she was rolling so far over on her sides that the sole lantern seemed almost parallel with the crossbeams. Children were screaming, and more than a few pilgrims feared she might shift her cargo and go all the way over. Suddenly, a tremendous boom resounded through the ship. The main crossbeam supporting the main mast had cracked and was sagging alarmingly. Oh, guys, I, I'm not sure you know, how you're responding to this. Some of you are just like, oh, it happened 400 years ago. It doesn't affect me. I want to bring you into the ship somehow. I want you to recognize that the preparation that they're going through is the same preparation you need to go through. I'm not saying you're going to be in a ship called the Mayflower and be going across the Atlantic for your calling. I'm just saying that there's an equivalent in our life that God wants to groom us for so that we can have the impact of these men and women. Now the sailors' concern matched the pilgrims. They swarmed about it, trying to lever it back into place, but they could not budge it. Master Jones, that's the master of the ship, himself came to sea. From the look on his face, it was obvious to the pilgrims that the situation was as ominous as they had feared. The pilgrims helped in the only way they knew how. They prayed. Yet, Lord, thou canst save. That was their prayer. Yet, Lord, thou canst save. I know we wouldn't probably use the old King James when we pray it. However, it's like the equivalent for us saying, God, looks like you've brought us into the perfect spot to show your power. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to this place. Thank you for the impossibilities because you delight in impossibilities. We get to see the faithfulness of God. Now, for me, in my, let's, let's remove, because I hope some of you don't know the story so, so we can sort of bait you out and play this out. What would you do with a broken mast? What, I mean, how do you fix that in the middle of the Atlantic? I mean, you can't just go to you know, the local store and buy a new mast. There's no dock port to come out of the water and to fix the boat. How are you going to fix this in the middle of the Atlantic? 
Should you go back home? Should you go forward? I, this is a terrible situation. I mean, this is disaster. Yet, Lord, you can save us. Readied for crisis. So are you readied for the broken mast? You know, I, I don't know if I passed the test of my dinged windshield yesterday. I, I actually feel, felt sort of guilty after I grumbled a little, like, oh, great. You know, I'm looking at the car in front of me going, what do you think you're doing spewing out rock? You know, it's going through my head. Instead of that initial first step of like, thank you, Lord. I'm probably going to be able to lead someone to the Lord. I'm going to go into, you know, get my uh, windshield fixed and this guy's going to be hungry for the gospel. Why didn't I think that thought, right? Instead, it's like, oh, inconvenience, right? Okay, I, that, that's not a great, I didn't pass that one as well as I would have liked to. Uh, but how am I going to do here? <laughs> Broken mast, how are we doing, guys? All right, we're all crammed in the uh, Mayflower. We're seasick. We're, you know, children screaming. It's really hard to think straight right now, okay? I, a lot of my sin has been coming up lately <laughs> in the middle of this trauma. And now we got a broken mast. Why did I come on this journey in the first place? I can't tell you how many Christians say, I didn't sign up for this. Are you sure about that? Remember when you counted the cost and you gave your life to Jesus and you said, come what may. Say, Lord Jesus, this belongs to you. Whatever you desire to do, whatever you desire to lead me into, my answer is yes. Remember those prayers? They sound so noble when you're in a nice AC, uh, you know, conditioned uh, church building and, you know, you're on the front of the church and, you know, everything's safe and secure in America with all your religious freedom to do that. And uh, now you're in the Mayflower and it's tumultuous waters you're not feeling so hot, and the mast is broken. Readied for crisis. So I'm going to go back to Flavius Josephus to the Red Sea incident. This is Moses' prayer. According to Flavius Josephus, okay, so like I said, this is not scripture, this is history, this is Jewish history of that same incident. Just a fascinating perspective on it. And this is Moses' prayer. It, is, it has had a big impact on me. Not because it's scripture, but any, like, it's like reading a biography. You read a biography, it's like, whoa, that is such an illustration of something. That's what this is to me. This is what Moses said, according to Flavius Josephus. Thou art not ignorant, O Lord, that it is beyond human strength and human contrivance to avoid the difficulties we are now under. But it must be thy work altogether to procure deliverance to this army, which has left Egypt at thy appointment. We despair of any other assistance or contrivance and have recourse only to that hope we have in thee. And if there be any method that can promise us an escape by thy providence, we look up to thee for it. And let it come quickly and manifest thy power to us. And do thou raise up this people unto good courage and hope of deliverance who are deeply sunk into a disconsolate state of mind. We are in a helpless place but it still is a place that thou possesses. Still the sea is thine, and the mountains also that enclose us are thine, so that these mountains will open themselves if thou commands them, and the sea also if thou commands it will become dry land. Nay, we might escape by a flight through the air if thou should determine we should have that way of salvation. Are, do you reason like that? It's like, God, if you want to flatten these mountains, we could walk out. 
at your command. If you want to open up this sea and make it dry land, we could walk across it. If you want to lift up this entire nation of Israel and fly us out, you could do that. Okay, I want that in my soul when the crisis comes. I want that sort of prayer coming out of me. To see every circumstance as if it's controlled by God. As if you are in God's hands and God has allowed you to come to this place so that he could show his strength to you. So that he could demonstrate his power. So that he could marshal his love on your behalf. Let him do it. Don't pick up stones to throw, to complain and come up with your solution of submitting back to the Egyptians. Don't go backwards. Go forwards. Don't turn back to England when the mast breaks. God has brought us this far, let's press forward. But how can we do that without a mast? I don't know how God's gonna do it, but he's gonna do it. This is the pilgrim's reasoning. God has not led us this far to have a sink in the middle of the Atlantic. He has a solution. Has he made provision? Did he make provision for Abraham? There's a ram that goes off wandering, sees a glimmer in a bush, comes over and gets his horns caught at just the exact moment that is needed. Moses also, God has this situation perfectly strategized out. I mean, you, you know the story, so as a result, it's not a shocker for me to say, he opened up the Red Sea and made dry land for them. I mean, that's extraordinary, guys. Could you imagine if the story had been that the nation flew out of there? I mean, that's cool. And that would have been great, right? But this is equally great that dry land is going to be created and, the, and they'll become walls. The sea will become a wall on both sides. They'll walk across and then the enemy's gonna like, well, what the hell, weird is this? And then go in after them and get swallowed up in it. That, that's a pretty cool story, right? This is God's solution. We look back in history and we see the final chapters to the story. We're like, oh, well, obviously, if I was on the Red Sea, I would have believed God. However, when we hit the Red Sea in our own life, we oftentimes will pick up stones to throw at God and say, how dare you bring me into such a circumstance? Instead of recognizing this very circumstance is what he brought you into so that he could show you his power and his love and his deliverance. In the middle of the Atlantic, key phrase, God is in control. When you're in the middle of the Atlantic, I could imagine that you'd feel far from any church building, anything that would make you feel spiritual, right? And that would make you feel sort of grounded on the, the living God. I mean, you're, you're on the waves of the sea. This is a hard time to trust your God. And yet the pilgrims are going to set a pace and a pattern for our souls. They believe they're God. They believe that God has a solution. They call it the means of grace. That's their term for it. They believe that God has a means of grace, which means he has a way of deliverance in every circumstance if you ask him for it. If you believe your God, he will supply because on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That's what we learned from Abraham, right? And so as a result, the reasoning outward is that, hey, we're on the mountain of the Lord. We're in the crisis. So therefore, it will be provided. Provision. What is provision? It's vision ahead of time. God sees that Red Sea moment. He sees the Egyptians coming against him, so he supplies for it. It's like, I'll fit them right there and I'll Divide the sea right here. All right, here, guys, over here, little to the left. Boom, right where they're supposed to be. The pilgrims. This is a great story, guys. I mean, this is like all time a great story. So I've oftentimes called it Bradford's screw, but 
come to find out and looking at the story again, it was William Brewster, not William Bradford's screw. So William Brewster has a printing press that he brings along. I'm sure a lot of people with the lack of room uh, in the Mayflowers are like, excuse me, what are we bringing this monstrosity for? And yet they have this printing press and as they're praying for deliverance, saying, God, give us wisdom, what should we do? Brewster remembers something. And he goes down to his printing press, and I, don't, I, I picture it being this huge long screw. I have no idea what size it was, but it was a massive iron screw, which just happened to fit perfectly into this mass structure to fit it and to make it durable again. God had seen fit to hide the solution in a printing press owned by William Brewster, and it was on the ship in the middle of the Atlantic. The solution was already provided before they even left the dock. Are you guys not as impressed with that as I am? God made provision. He saw ahead and supplied precisely what was needed for the exact moment it was needed. Should you fear when you know that the Lord God provides? Should you fear the crisis if you know that God saw it ahead of time and he has supplied you everything you need for that crisis? Or should we, when the crisis comes, rejoice and say, Lord, I wait in great expectancy and just like you provided that ram in the thicket, just like you supplied the the way across on dry land across that Red Sea and just like you supplied Brewster's iron screw to the pilgrims, you can supply for this moment. He's faithful. He's true. Abraham, the ram caught in the thicket. It's a great story, guys. I mean, most of us fail to recognize the timing and how beautiful it is. If that ram had gone, even two seconds before, Abraham may have not raised his knife. But Abraham is going to walk through that obedience. He has to go into the crisis zone. He has to actually start moving in agreement with God. And then God says, stop. And then, from the bush, is heard. The timing is extraordinary. Everything is so well orchestrated and choreographed by God. And when you see that that's a parallel with the cross, you're going to recognize everything about the timing of the cross is perfect. Everything, even though it looks like the enemy's in control. Who's in control of that situation? God Almighty. I mean, Satan enters Judas to betray him. Satan does, right? So then Judas is going to come to the Gethsemane, you know, with the, you know, the guards and the priests and all that. And they're like, hey, this is the guy. And guess what? All of that is perfectly timed. What day is this? Passover of all days? I mean, how did that happen? Passover. You know where Jesus is going to die? I don't know if you guys have ever heard this. In the Old Testament, it's a place called Mount Moriah. In Jerusalem, Jesus and that sacrificial ram caught in the thicket die in the same spot. Okay. You think God doesn't have a brain in all of this? Do you think he's not in control? Who's in control, Church of Jesus Christ? Do we have anything to fear? The number one way to ready for crisis is to start trusting your God. Just believe him in the small things. When a rock dances you know, from the truck in front of you and dings your windshield, be a little quicker than Eric was yesterday to say, oh Lord, perfect. This is what I needed, exactly. <laughs> God, you're gonna build me stronger through, through, through this. 
because he will. Every situation. We have had a lot of crises here in the Ellerslie ministry, a lot of difficulties. And I would say if there's one thing our ministry is pretty good at, not perfect, but pretty good at, it's rejoicing in very dark moments because we have seen God prove faithful. Moses, the parting sea. Moses, the Egyptian weapons. Oh, I love this. Okay, now, the Israelites have no weapons. Now, do you know what's awaiting them on the other side of the Red Sea? Uh, the Amalekites. Okay, do you remember the battle where Moses is going to have his arms held up? Okay, that, that's all just around the corner here, right? And uh, so we have some, some challenges just around the corner. And the Israelites have no, no weapons. So the Egyptians are going to follow them into the Red Sea, get swallowed up, and listen to this story. On the next day, this is Flavius Josephus, his historical account on it. On the next day, Moses gathered together the weapons of the Egyptians, which were brought to the camp of the Hebrews by the current of the sea. And he conjectured that this also happened by divine providence, that so they might not be destitute of weapons. Oh, and by the way, I'm not just going to deliver you here, but I'm going to supply for you everything you need for life and godliness in this new land. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing, guys. You actually are going to have all the weapons that you need as well? Because, I mean, these guys have nothing. They're going to leave. I mean, they leave with some gold. Don't get me wrong. But gold, you can't throw a, you know, a chunk of gold at, at your enemy very easily. They're probably going to catch it and go, thank you, and then run off. <laughs> And this isn't the easiest thing. They need, they need to be able to fight this spiritual battle. You have not been left destitute. You have been left with everything you need for life and godliness. The beauty of trials. How many of you want to make that your life lesson? If you make a, this your life lesson, your life will be a glorious one. The beauty of trials. No, they're beautiful. I love trials. I love tests. I love tests. Okay, I know nat natural man does not think that way. However, there's a reason why the apostles would sing in prison cells. There's a reason why they would rejoice when they heard that they were going to be fed to wild beasts in the morning. Who would do that? Rejoice? My, my salvation has finally come, shouted Ignatius, who was discipled by John the apostle. His salvation has finally come? He's going to be fed to lions in the morning. How could that be salvation? Desiderio Domini. I dearly long to be with my Lord. This is a thinking pattern which is so foreign to natural man. But supernatural man, the one that is made new by Christ, that is born again in Christ, thinks and reasons completely different. The beauty of trials. James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. It produces patience. Patience is, I mean, to us it sounds like the ability to just sort of stand in front of the microwave and not grumble. Patience is like the calm and confidence of the soul to go through any difficulty. Patience is what you need to die a martyr's death, by the way. According to all, like you start reading through Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know what they're going to constantly describe? This man had great patience when he died. So like, why do you need great patience when you die? It's the ability to endure trials and sufferings. Well, what's going to produce that? Counting all your various trials, joy. 
And if you start doing that, this is going to build this quality, this attribute inside of your soul. It's going to establish. It's like filling up your lamp with oil. It's what you need for the coming trial. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and lack and complete, lacking nothing. Romans 5, 3 through 4. We also glory in tribulations. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You glory in tribulations? Tribulation would be, comes from the word tribular, which is a threshing instrument. So you would, you would hit at, whether it's corn or whether it's wheat, and to remove the outer husk. And so that's what threshing is. So chaff, for instance, on a wheat, how are you going to get it off? Well, you need to thresh it. That's what a tribular does. Well, so we glory when the tribular starts working on us, and it's going to remove all that dead stuff. You know, all the stuff we don't need and all the stuff that's going to make us fail in trial, I want that off so that I can be ready for the crisis. We also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Our light affliction, which is but a, for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, when you face the Red Sea, in the moment it feels like it's the greatest trial you could ever have. It may be the greatest trial you've ever faced, but it's a light affliction in light of everything. It's a light affliction compared to what Jesus bore at the cross. And God has given you everything you need for it. So really there's nothing to complain about. You have everything you need to be buoyed up and to be sustained in and through this. So what you need to remember is that this affliction that you are enjoying right now, did you notice my choice of words there, enjoying right now, is actually working for you something. It's actually building something, which is why we can rejoice in it. This light affliction is actually building something. If we went to a gym, we all went to a gym, and I'm like, okay, guys, we're going to learn how to do the shoulder press today. And so you sit on a bench, and you have this bar back here, and we're going to take it off the bar, and we're going to set it on your shoulders. You ready? Yeah, yeah. And you're going to feel a weight. Now imagine I don't tell you what's happening. I don't tell you that we're going to exercise and strengthen our muscles. And I just set a weight on your shoulders. And you're like, ha, oh, ho, hey, ho, that's heavy. And you complain, and it like breaks your, you know, your, your neck you know, because of the way you fall down. And it's like, hey, well, this, this actually wasn't supposed to cause you harm. This was supposed to strengthen you. But the way that you receive it defines if it injures you or if it strengthens you. Many of us treat the barbell that we receive, the light affliction that we receive. That wasn't even that much weight. Come on, buddy. The light affliction that we receive, we do not receive it as if it is a gift, as if it is something to strengthen us, so we mishandle it and actually injure ourselves. Instead of getting into position and saying, God, how do you want me to hold it? Well, fix your hands out here. Okay, now press. All right? Okay, thank you, Lord. That's great. So this is strengthening me? This is strengthening you. Let's keep going. No pain, no gain, Eric. All right, there we go. There we go again. All right, all right, keep going. Ten more. Ten, ten, ten more. Yeah, keep going. You, you got it. You got it. You see, this is a workout. This is exercise. And many of us will pay gyms to be able to come in and do it. We get a free membership pass to God's gym. Not Gold's gym. God's gym. And we can actually be built strong and ready to face any difficulty that could ever come our way. Isn't that exciting? This should get you excited. You should be literally, I mean, having a giggle inside of your soul with how amazing this is. This transforms every dark point in your future, every difficult point, every trial 
and it transforms it into something beautiful. Father, I ask that you would transform our thinking, that you would enable us to see through your lens. Lord, you are building us to shine Jesus to the world, to show his love, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would work with light affliction upon our shoulders today and that we would practice rejoicing, that we would train upon the lion and train upon the bear so that we are readied for the more difficult moments that lie ahead. Lord Jesus, we thank you for every challenge, for every one of those challenges is working something beautiful and profound into our soul when we receive it properly. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray this and ask this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.